unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. So the same to the final episode of what we're calling season 2.5 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am soon to be not unemployed graduate student Michael Farmer. Hooray. Joining me from his newly renovated basement office is Mr. David Grubbs. He's a graduate instructor of English at the University of Georgia. Is it nice to breathe asbestos free air, David? Uh, it is at the moment. Well, they haven't, they haven't started ripping the, the, the walls out yet. And they aren't renovating my office. They're just taking everyone else's office away and making one ginormous room with cubicles. Oh, really? That's yeah. a step down, isn't it? Yeah, but I get to keep my office by virtue of seniority. That's nice. So uh, suddenly my, my, uh, my Chinese takeout box uh, is much better than, uh, than it was previously by comparison. Also uh, joining us is Nathan Gilmore, who's an assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Are you talking from Franklin Springs, Nathan? I, I'm actually in my own basement in Statham, Georgia. So it's a, it's a show on the road, except less on the road than usual, actually. Um, all three of our summer episodes have had special guests, and today's no exception. So joining us for our discussion of fandom and fanaticism is Victoria Reynolds Farmer, who's a graduate instructor of English at Florida State University. She's also my wife, which means I have to be on my best behavior today. Thanks for joining <laughs> us, Victoria. Thanks for having me. So uh, normally at this point we talk about what's been on the blog in the past week, but since we haven't had an episode in a month, I think... I'll just let people go over to christianhumanist.org slash chb and uh, check that out for themselves. Guys, do you have anything to add before we jump into the discussion? Not really. Other than keep tuning in. Uh, it's the same RSS feed, so you don't have to resubscribe. But you will have to resubscribe to CWC, the radio show, when it ramps up here in the fall. Oh, also a cool loot announcement. New, uh, soon. Yeah, I wasn't sure if you wanted to talk about that yet or not, David. I'm not going to get specific. I'm just going to tease it. I, I got you. See, you're, you're better at this than I am. But uh, <laughs> as I said, we're going to be talking about fandom and fanaticism today. And Victoria, there's obviously a reason we decided to talk about those subjects on the day that you're on the show. So why don't you take a few minutes here and explain your credentials to our audience? And what would you describe yourself as a fan of? Um, I'm a casual fan of many, many things, um, mostly television. I watch way too much television. But in terms of fandoms, I consider myself an official part of um, the Hanson fandom, the band. Yes, they are more than the Mbop, and you'll hear me talk about that uh, later. <laughs> um, Supernatural, the television show, uh, it airs on the CW. It's a sci-fi show about two brothers who fight ghosts and demons and other things that go bump in the night. And uh, to a lesser extent, Rent the Broadway Show. So those are the fandoms I'm sort of actively a part of. And uh, as far as academic credentials, I've done some work with celebrity culture and fandom. Um, in my master's, I wrote a thesis about teen movie Shakespeare uh, and analyzed a lot of fan sites First source is there, so I worked with that. And also, um, my undergraduate capstone paper was a paper that was a Foucauldian analysis of Live Journal and how those communities work. So she's got range. What about you guys? Nathan, would you call yourself a fan of anything? Well, this is going to be another opportunity for you guys to make fun of me for being the old family man, but I, I was <laughs> a fan of. Metallica, certainly, when I was a teenager and through most of college. Uh, you know, I, I, I stuck with some TV shows when I was younger. Uh, you know, even before I started driving and I had to start spending my money on gas instead of on comic books, uh, I was a fan of Spider-Man, X-Men, all those sorts of things. It's one of those things where, I mean, now, now that I have two kids, 
uh, one of them is getting old enough to be a fan himself. I find myself devoting the fan part of my brain, not to my own obsessions, but now to Bakugan and Pokemon and things that Micah <laughs> likes. So I, you know, I, I'm sort of learning what it is to get into new things as a fan. So Grubs, how about you? My life is pretty much defined by the things uh, I love, the things that I'm a fan of. Uh, I, I've all my life been one to kind of have kicks of interest and I would just pursue those interests uh, ad nauseum. Well, uh, ad infinitum to me, ad nauseum to the people around <laughs> me. Um, Tolkien is the one that's probably uh, been the most durable throughout my life. Uh, in college, I picked up Kung Fu films and Samurai films uh, and, you know, a number of other little minor fandoms. Uh, I love 1930s serials, uh, you know, and have built my cell phone theme around Flash Gordon. Um, but that's that's TMI. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I consider myself a fan like Victoria. Less of music, more of uh, fictional settings, books, movies, things of that nature. See, I think I stand a little bit aloof from all this stuff. I uh, there there are certainly things I appreciate. Um, you know, there's there's lots of bands I like, and if you if you listen to the podcast, you you can pretty much pick up what I like based on what the intro music is. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm a big I'm a big Disney guy, but I I wouldn't call myself a fanatic compared to the uh, other people in the world who uh, who are really devoted. When I was in high school, there were a couple of actually Christian rock bands, and I, I know we're going to do a Christian music episode um, next season, so we'll talk about it then. But uh, th- there there were a couple of uh, of bands I was I was probably a a, a, a quote unquote fan of. Nowadays, I, I, I think I stand a little more aloof from it. I appreciate things without uh, throwing my whole being into them the way I think you have to, <laughs> to be a fan. And, and that actually brings me to the next point. Uh, before we go any further, we really need to define what we mean when we say fandom or, or fanaticism. Um, is there a difference, Victoria, between being a fan of something and being a fan of something in scare quotes? Um, I certainly think that there is um I, I'm not sure I use the same linguistic differentiation um, that you did, but I think there's a difference in being a fan of something and being active in a fandom. Um, I think any f- given fandom is an inclusive community, and like any community, requires proof of a body of knowledge. Um, every fandom has a sort of shorthand, a language, a history that you need to know to contribute to it. And, uh, and it's serious business. Fans in any given fandom judge one another based on these levels of knowledge, I think. Uh, for example, just to draw on my own fandoms here, any serious Hanson fan knows there were two independent records before Middle of Nowhere and has them, though probably copies of questionable legality. Um, <laughs> and most refer to longer album or video titles by their acronym, uh, for example, the first um, big tour video was called Tulsa, Tokyo, and the Middle of Nowhere, uh, their hometown, the farthest place they went away, and the title of the first studio record. But no one says that. Uh, if I were talking to a fan, I would say, when's the last time you watched TTMON, for example? <laughs> so there's a cheesy little language that you have to know. Um, and it, it's an inclusivity thing. It's I know something special, and you know it too. Now, to to me, to to me, and you can um, you guys can can tell me what you think about this. But but to me, uh, the difference between a fan of something and a scare quote fan of something is is the following statement. And I remember hearing this uh, all the time growing up on the internet. And I'm going to use an, I'm going to use the example of the band Kings X. I feel but, old. When I was growing up, there was no internet to be on. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds well, like there was, a... but it was only used by the NSA. It, it, it <laughs> sounds like you're a fan of uh, pointing out how much older you are than me. <laughs> anyway, I'm gonna use the I'm gonna use the band Kings X because this is always the band that comes to mind. People would say things like, "Well, the worst album by Kings X is better than the best album by anyone else." And, and mm-hmm. even at the time, I, I I thought, "Really? Is that is that really what you mean?" And and Victoria, would you say that's a 
that, that's, a, that's a good mark of, of what it means to be a scare quote fan of something, to think that no matter what they put out, it's the best. I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, I think every serious fan maybe goes through that stage, but I'm at a point, and maybe it's just a ma- maturity thing. Maybe when I was 14, I thought that middle of nowhere was the best thing ever. Um, but at this point, I'm willing to admit that my fandoms make mistakes. So I see what you're saying, but I'm not sure I entirely agree with that. All right. I mean, I'm coming at it uh, again from uh, from from an outsider's perspective. Mm-hmm. David, Nathan, do you do you have anything to add to this? Well, it's interesting. I mean, that distinction you're making, Michael. I I think that if I were going to try to put labels on it, I would say you know there's a a distinction between fans of something and then partisans of something. And I, I I guess I think of it that way because of you know the sort of Metallica and Guns and Roses rivalry, if you will, that existed you know in the late 80s, early 90s, and then, of course, the Metallica and Nirvana hatred that existed uh, in don't, the mid-90s. Don't forget Metallica Megadeth. Well, yeah, well, that was actually the members of the band. I'm talking about folks in Plainfield, Indiana, who dug one <laughs> or the other. Uh, you know, I mean, there there was definitely a set of social markers uh, that identified you as a Metallica person or a Nirvana person in 1994 uh, at Plainfield High School. And I'd say that that was a mark of partisanship rather than a fandom. It wasn't necessarily that you had a working knowledge like Victoria was describing. I think that's a different sort of thing. Uh, but it was that you were, because of your affiliation with or per, maybe even participation with a certain subculture, you know, you were looking at belonging in a different way. I mean, Victoria, I mean, do, do, are you tracking two different sorts of phenomena here? Uh, could you maybe repeat that question oh yeah sure sure I, I i think that on one hand you've got knowledge and ignorance on one axis and that's what you were talking about you know there's a certain body of knowledge you have to know the names of the albums the names of the tour videos so on and so forth but then there's another sort of thing that goes on especially in junior high high school sorts of settings where affiliation with this pop culture artifact in opposition to affiliation with that pop culture artifact. You know, when I was in high school, it was, you know, and this is an awful example, but Metallica people on one hand, Dr. Dre people on another hand, and Nirvana people on another hand. I mean, it was a social grouping rather than a question of knowledge and ignorance. And a three-handed monster. Yes, yes, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Sorry. Um. Yeah, I think you've got something there. Like, for example, um, I get incredibly angry at people who uh, who assume that I'm a Jonas Brothers fan. Um, <laughs> just because I'm a Hanson fan, they're not because, the same. Because there actually is no difference between those two bands, except Victoria liked one of them when she was 12. Um, no, there is a difference. <laughs> I'm not going to get into the uh, why there's a difference, but there is. I'm right, and Michael is wrong. But um, I guess when I was in middle school, I, um, I was 12, 13, 14 for the big boy band Renaissance. And um, you couldn't like Backstreet Boys and NSYNC at the same time. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think who, who there's did that you choose, Nathan? Thing, thing too. <laughs> By know, that time, I had yeah. dropped out of popular music entirely, I'm afraid. Well, didn't that have some of that, Victoria, have to do with, you know, sort of coming of age and the boy bands also being, well, attractive boys bands, not just the music? Did the rivalry have to do with them being attractive or did the fandom have to do with them being attractive? Well, the, 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 the junior high partisanship, uh, you know, at least at least among amongst the, the girl culture, you know, some of the some of the protectiveness of the band being being also a uh, I don't know a, 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 I don't know that kind of thing a little bit I think but um, even at the time I knew that they were kind of the same like every band has a cute one and a rebellious one and <laughs> they, I, I knew that the types existed in both bands so a, a little bit but um, kind of not 
All right, well, uh, moving on. David, in my admittedly non-academic and non-systematic observation, um, as you can tell from the last discussion, uh, two <laughs> things in particular seem to inspire fanaticism. And, and one is music, and we'll get to that in a minute, but the other is mm-hmm. speculative fiction. And I, I want to know what it is about science fiction and fantasy that demands such intense devotion. And since you're the one of the uh, four of us who's most into science fiction and fantasy, I want to hear your thoughts first. Okay. Uh, I was thinking about I was thinking about this in terms of, of, of history. When do when do these kinds of fandoms about cultural artifacts, uh, particularly fictional settings, when when do these start where they originate um the first examples that i could think of were uh the pre-raphaelites william morris and his ilk um the victorians who had this uh, uh romantic and aesthetic obsession with the middle ages but not just the middle ages as it actually was but the middle ages as it was presented in the art of the middle ages and so you have william morris writing uh, some of the very first uh, fantasy novels ever written uh, in imitation of Icelandic sagas, in imitation of uh, French chivalric romance, and uh, an attempt to imitate the art, an attempt to imitate music and craftsman styles, um, and really just a, an obsession with that whole artistic and aesthetic uh, you know, atmosphere. The, one of the things that that motivated the pre-Raphaelites, at least as I understand it, is a rejection of the way their culture was trending, particularly uh, industrialism and the 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 values that made that particular machine drive. They longed for uh, a different time that was simpler and that was uh, frankly more beautiful uh, than the one that they were in. Um, the same kind of thing you can see if you if you read the Lord of the Rings. The same kind of thing motivated Tolkien. You can see his his love of uh, the pre-modern and the medieval, and it comes out in his writing, and also his love of the natural versus the mechanistic. And one thing that we often forget is that the Lord of the Rings wasn't. It wasn't a huge bestseller when it first came out. It wasn't until the 1960s and the 60s counterculture picked it up that there was huge Tolkien fandom. Because it helps uh, to be high to read those books, right? Well, not not just the chemically augmented uh, set, but also the the widespread, um, at least in the, in the 60s counterculture, it was a counterculture, and they were looking for something, a, a way of doing life, a way of doing society, other than the way uh, it had predominantly been done up to that point. They were rejecting the culture that they'd been given. And Tolkien seemed to give a, a vision of another way of, of, of being human uh, in, this human, in the society of humans, but also of being human in relationship to uh, the physical world, the natural world. Right, and it's interesting because I, and David, I, I might be thinking of the wrong book, but one of, I think Tom Shippey's book starts out with a sort of, apologia for studying Tolkien and says this, these aren't just books for hippies. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember reading that and thinking, wow, you know, in our time in the last decade or so, you know, the Lord of the Rings, if anything, has been seized by the sort of neoconservative, you know, military empire ideology. Whereas, you know, 40 years ago, it was the, well, the hippies. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the evolution of who likes Tolkien at which time is uh, really, really interesting. But what you can see in, in, all of the, uh, in all of those particular fandoms is a discontent with the world as it is and uh, an attraction to a fictional world because it seems to in some way um, address those discontents. Um, science fiction, uh, particularly uh, the uh, Early science fiction, uh, you know, twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, very often was very forward-looking. Um, it, it looked at science as uh, this unambiguously positive thing that was going to create a a wonderful future. 
a future of, of unity and of peace and uh, of adventure. But that adventure will be exploration into new worlds. And you can still see that kind of embodied in, in Star Trek, that, uh, that kind of desire to get beyond this present where we're kind of mired down and get to a future where, you know, present troubles like wars and national dissension and racism and where are we going to get our food from, all of those things are solved and we can worry about, you know, Klingons. More yeah, Klingons, yeah. <laughs> more, more interesting problems. So, David, what's uh, your... What you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, what, what you're saying is that the reason speculative fiction demands such devotion from its its fans is that they don't fit into the world as it is, and so th their their fanaticism for, for this stuff is a way of creating a, a more uh, hospitable world. Well, not always uh, don't fit in in the sense of are rejected, but also don't fit in in the sense of they reject. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a, uh, a, uh, a documentary about a, a LARPing group. Uh, the title of it is, uh, uh, Darkon. It's this big alternate, um, alternate world of people who dress up in armor and there are rises and falls of empires and kingdoms and political leaders. And they're basically people who go to work during the week so that they can put on their armor on the weekend and hit each other with foam swords. I love um, that. It's super awesome. Well, yeah. Uh, but I, 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 you know, a lot of people see this, you know, this is escapist. They're trying to get away from the real world. But you know what? Sometimes the real world is kind of lame. Yeah. Why is escapism inherently bad? I've always uh, reacted negatively to that assumption. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not inherently bad. It's just bad if you begin to escape so much that you can't function in the actual world, right? I mean, we all we all live in a fantasy world to some extent, whether whether it has elves or uh, aliens or what have you. But uh, the 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 line is when is when you can no longer uh, you can no longer function in the world as it is. I grant that. I yeah. grant that. I, I've I I haven't met any Tolkien fans who can't function in the world as it me, is. Though. Me neither. But I mean, um, you hear stories about the Comic Con folks. The one guy who stabbed another patron with a pen over something, <laughs> something outrageously trivial, and you you think, well, here's the here's the dark side of fandom, right? There's no rage like nerd rage. Oh, I I do remember flame wars on the the message boards of AOL over whether or not uh, the Enterprise could take an Imperial Star Destroyer. To say I mean, nothing of... To say I mean, obviously it couldn't. The Enterprise would fit in the hangar bay of a Star Destroyer. Um, I mean, the whole thing was ridiculous anyway. And I've just revealed which partisan, uh, kind of partisan I was. <laughs> All right. Uh, what, what about music, Victoria? You're, you're involved, as you've mentioned, in the Hanson fan community, and, and I, I am thankful that you're not as involved as uh, a lot of people are. So, some fans go to really ridiculous lengths to follow this band around um, in ways I think would probably uh, surprise most of our listenership. So what's up with that? You can tell us some horror stories about Hanson fans, but I also want to discuss why music makes such a connection. Um, well, I guess I'll start general. Music, I think, um, I have a theory, and you guys will not be surprised to note that it is a gendered theory. Um, I think especially for young women, music and uh, fandom of music is a way that young women can express um, a kind of burgeoning sexuality in a way that's socially acceptable that wouldn't be socially acceptable outside of fandom. Um, so I, I think that's part of it. Broader than that, though, you can't deny that art speaks to people in general, and music is one of those things that just sort of resonates in ways that occasionally are unexplainable. Mm -hmm. But why, why music more than other things? I mean, think of the number of idiot arguments you've seen on the Internet about whether X band is good or bad. Or, or get meta with it and, and think about the, the number of idiot arguments you've seen over whether you can objectively evaluate music. 
Well, I think this is one of the places where modern philosophy actually starts to get into some interesting psychological realities, uh, and especially Hegel in his lectures on aesthetics. He actually starts with architecture on one end of a spectrum uh, that runs all the way from architecture, which is static and inside of which you can dwell. It runs from that to sculpture to painting to literature and eventually to music. And what he says about music is the power of music emotionally is the fact that its very existence is ephemeral. In other words, when a symphony plays, that music inhabits the space that the symphony and the listeners share momentarily. But then when that's over, it's not like a palace in which you go to sleep afterwards. It's not like a sculpture which you can behold after the artist has left. It's not even like a poem uh, which you can pull out of a drawer and read later. Uh, but the symphony simply does not exist anymore. And one of the things that Hegel says that I think is worthwhile is that uh, because our existences are temporal existences, you know, we mortals anyway, uh, that very most temporal of our art forms, music, tends to impact us and resonate with us on a level that other art forms, although they are excellent intellectually, don't resonate emotionally. You know, it's interesting you'd bring that up, Nathan, because Kierkegaard talks about music being the demonic in either or because hmm. it's it's wholly spiritual. It has no, no body whatsoever. I, I didn't realize he was building so much on Hegel, and of course he's consigning, he's consigning that attitude to the lowest form of existence, the aesthetic sphere. So it makes sense that he would he would throw Hegel in there because he typically does. I didn't realize, right. <laughs> but yeah. So uh, Kierkegaard once again uh, rips off Hegel without uh, without me knowing. So what do we do with that technologically then? Um, I, I think that seems like an awesome articulation of why live music feels differently than recorded music, but but what about recorded music in light of those theories? Well, and I, I think that, you know, this is where you get into folks like Theodore Adorno, uh, Walter Benjamin, folks like that who are, you know, really talking about what happens when you've got an experience that is repeatable at the press of a button. And, you know, it, it, it's definitely, and I think, Victoria, I mean, going back to your idea of fandom as a body of knowledge and a body of familiarity and a sort of credentialing process, I think this is why the true fans uh, are the ones who have gone to live shows, because by definition, you know, with the exception of Grateful Leg bootlegs, Grateful Dead bootlegs, uh, you know, those obviously circulate, but I mean, a live show by definition uh, remains ephemeral in a way that an MP3 file or a CD doesn't. Which I mean, m many people who ca who came along after the after the '60s in particular prefer studio recordings to live recordings, and maybe for that, maybe for that very reason. Like I I could care less about hearing a live recording, and I don't I don't much care about going to live shows. But I like I like listening to to the studio stuff. But that that's kind of neither here nor there, I suppose. Well, I, I think it has to do with it, because I think if you tie that back to other kinds of fandom, I think that it, you know, I, I think that it applies as well to sports fandom, right? I mean, I I definitely cherish the times that I've been in Wrigley Field. Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed the one NFL game that I ever went to, although, frankly, I'd rather watch the NFL on TV. But, <laughs> uh, you know, the folks who are the really rabid fans of Indianapolis Colts or Atlanta Braves or whoever you know, part of the credentialing process of that is how many times have you been to the stadium? Yeah, do you have season tickets? Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, yeah, Michael. What, what parts of the stadium do you have access to in some cases? Sure. But, I mean, so at this point, we're defining we're defining fandom as um, having a leg up on other fans, right? It's, it's a get-ahead it's a get move. Well, and actually, that that's something that Victoria said earlier that I, I wanted to follow up on, but I didn't get a chance to. I mean, you described, Victoria, fandom as an inclusive thing. And in my own experience, I, I think that it's at the very least a dialectic between inclusion and exclusion. I mean, can Certainly. you speak to that a little bit? Um, I, yeah, I think um, I, I have fairly Foucauldian theories about it. I think that um, – sorry, I'm going to get up. Uh, apologies. Uh, I'm going to get a little, just a little theoretical um, for a second. So Michel Foucault, 
um, in writing about the birth of the clinic says that we give doctors insane amounts of power because they have, in effect, this secret language that we don't understand. They know uh, medical terms, and because we don't, um, they could be saying anything to us and we don't know, and we just say, oh, okay, you're a doctor, and assume mm -hmm. that they know what they're talking about. Um, I think that fandoms work in the same way um, to keep people in and to keep people out. Um, that paper that I mentioned that I wrote about uh, the linguistic structures of live journal communities, um, I had no idea how cutthroat a bunch of 14-year-old girls on the internet could be um, <laughs> <laughs> until that point. Which is um, wild because you once were a 14-year-old girl on the internet. But not, the, the internet that I had was not the internet that there is now. Um, I, I sure. didn't know. Uh, I didn't know the kinds of things uh, then that I know now and the, the kinds of forums that exist now didn't exist then. Um, right. The, the communities that I monitored, um, they expected you to, to lurk, to occupy a community without posting or contributing to it for a while until you knew um, a certain amount of information. Um, if you asked a, a newbie question, uh, you would be openly ridiculed in a lot of situations. Uh, why don't you go read the FAQ? What are you doing? This is ridiculous. That kind of thing. So I, I think that um, the inclusion is also exclusion, yes, and can be really mean sometimes. Well, Victoria, why don't you tell us what we all came here for and give us some stories about uh, insane Hanson fans <laughs> before we move away from music. Okay. Um, I, I'm really glad that my online friends aren't going to be listening to this because I am going to the next tour. So, um, so proof that I'm not totally crazy or as crazy as other people is I don't have a tattoo. Um, there are many, many, many Hanson tattoos. Um, most people start out with just the symbol. Um, you guys probably don't know what that is. It's a circle with Hanson written kind of funny. Um, it was on their first album cover. I don't know. Anyway, um, so most people start out with a symbol. Um, some people get song lyrics. Uh, I did meet one girl that had all three guys' faces, like, across her back, which was really weird. Uh, <laughs> And then it was creepy. And then um, she she had gotten a meet and greet at that show, and she got them to sign next to their faces. And then she got the signatures tattooed. Oy uh, so super serious. Um, that's one reason I'm not crazy. The other reason is I haven't quit my job to follow the tours around. Huh. Um, there's a lot a lot of serious competition um, online. Who's been to the most shows? Um, people who go to a lot of shows play this game where uh, they guess the set list before the show starts um, because they've been to so many other shows on that tour. Um, I'm not that serious. I want to go to one show per tour um, if I can, and that's it's pretty much my deal. Well, I uh, um, ask you to... I ask you to tell us those stories not just so we could ridicule Hanson fans, but because they form kind of a segue into our next question. Um, we, we need to bring this back to theology at some point because that's what we do, so let's do it now. Um, Nathan, my Presbyterian mind feels guilty for <laughs> devoting my time to things that Calvin would certainly see as worthless. So I'm counting on you to soothe my conscience here. At what point does fandom cross the line into idolatry? Uh, that's right, listeners. We've come to the part where I let Calvinists off the hook. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We need a special theme song to this, uh, this, this part of the show. If somebody wants to write a jingle, we'll play it on the air. Well, it's interesting. It, it, this is one of those places where actually the, the Anabaptists might even be a little bit guiltier than the Calvinists. Uh, and the reason is that, you know, one of the things about ecclesiology is that, you know, a... a an Anabaptist ecclesiology, certainly, and I'd say a Protestant ecclesiology in general, holds that anyone who is a member of the body of Christ has very, very important things before us, uh, the business of God, if you will. Uh, and so, I mean, if anything, I, I should be more guilt-ridden even than a Calvinist. That said, 
uh, one of the things about fandom, if you will, uh, especially in the internet age, and I, I, th- I think that it is a helpful distinction uh, to talk about what fandom means in the pre-Raphaelite circles that David was talking about versus what it might have meant around 1980 when Star Wars mania was at its height versus what it means now uh, when the internet is such a part of life. And I think that one of the strong characteristics of the internet age is this idea that you are generating content as a fan in a way that you probably weren't generating in 1980. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I think that, you know, if we hold to anything like what T.S. Eliot talks about, you know, in terms of a tradition, uh, you know, do I think that there are better traditions than the tradition of Star Wars fandom? Yeah, I think there probably are. But I think that nonetheless, being a cultural relativist, even if not a moral relativist, you know, I think that I can see a certain complexity and a certain space for creativity uh, within the fan community for speculative fiction and perhaps even for musical groups. I'm not as strong over there. Uh, but I think that there is space for us to do those things that make us human within those communities. Now, you know, my hope, because I am a college teacher, after all, I teach uh, old dead folks like Plato and Shakespeare and whatnot. Uh, you know, my hope would be that those things that people experience in those arenas can translate into something that I would call, you know, the broader intellectual tradition of the human race, you know, something where you're interacting with um, Gilgamesh rather than Metallica, you know, loaded and reloaded. Uh, But, you know, I don't think that I would write those things off immediately as inherently worthless. I think that by participating in that human community, even if it runs the danger of idolatry or whatever else you want to call it, I think that it has the potential to bring good things to human life. David, I am rambling like a beast. What I mean, run with it. What do you think? I agree, and you know, I'm going to fall back on Tolkien um, because that's that's just kind of what I do, um, particularly. And and I, I've talked about this before in the episode that we did on fantasy and science fiction where he he talked about speculative fiction as as a human right that humans are naturally creative um and that we we desire uh we desire to make things and fandom is uh at least the speculative fiction fandom that 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 I'm more familiar with uh is a desire to to participate with the artists in uh in experiencing and sometimes even creating that uh, that secondary, that fictional reality, which they've invested uh, their time and genius into. Um, and so we have things like uh, fan fiction. We have things like role-playing games. We have things like uh, like fan films that uh, uh, a, a, there's a, a rather nice fan film which uh, I, I don't know if it's still there, but it was up on YouTube. It was a it was a full length feature film about things that Aragorn was doing before Lord of the Rings as he was hunting down Gollum, which is you know kind of mentioned tangentially in the Lord of the Rings books, and it never showed up in in uh, the films. But uh, a fan wanting to to continue to to build this world. Uh, spent their energies and their monies in in producing this thing, and so there is there is a very creative aspect of it too. It's not just a an idolatry of a static artifact, but it's a growing it's a growing artifact, and it's a it's a a community that's built by people who appreciate the art, but also um, want to participate in it to help to help make it, and so it grows. All right. That's interesting, David, that you went to Dungeons & Dragons. That's one of those things I probably should have should have thought of during show prep, but I didn't. But, I mean, I played hours and hours and hours of Dungeons & Dragons as a teenager. And mm-hmm. I think that it, that is one of those places where you are... I mean, it's obviously rooted in Tolkien's work. Uh, and as a group of people playing that game, you are expanding the imaginative effort that Tolkien began into stories that in one human lifetime, he didn't have time to 
come up with. You know, so I mean, I, I think, you know, you're right that this creativity end of it can really be something good that comes out of it. Uh, Michael, do you, do you feel your conscience soothed yet? Well, now I'm more interested in this fan fiction discussion because this is an argument Victoria and I have all the time because I'm a little weirded out by fan fiction. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't find it particularly creative. I find it uh, very, very strange that instead of writing your own property, you take somebody else's property and expand on it. That, that seems odd to me. And maybe, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. Well, tell, tell, me, tell me what's wrong with me. And well, I, I don't know. Go ahead, Victoria. I'm sorry. Uh, thanks. So, um, as Michael said, I do um, agree with what you guys are saying about um, creativity and, and artistry in fan communities. Um, a book that really um, pushed how I think about that issue and a book that if anyone listening is interested in um, fandom construction and, and how it sort of ebbs and flows should read is Henry Jenkins' book, Textual Poachers. Um, it, fo it focuses mainly on television. Um, there's a Star Trek chapter, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer chapter, um, among others. But his theories can really be adapted to any fandom, I think. Um, and he, he talks through and says that that poaching, that taking, um, is really not a taking, but a, a participating and a recreating. Um, and he comes back to... Uh, the, the old uh, saw that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? Um, that if you like something so much that you just want to be involved with it and repeat it and recreate it, that that's um, a, a very positive thing and, and not a negative stealing thing, which is why I think um, something new that's happening in a, or new-ish, that's happening in a lot of really big fandom um, is responses from creators of huge fandoms to their fans. Um, and that happened in several ways. Uh, Joss Whedon has an official message board where he talks to fans and pitches them uh, ideas for shows and screenplays and they respond to him. Um, that's part of how Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, other fandoms do it as well, um, JK Rowling not rolling, rolling like bowling. Uh, um, rolling, rolling, rolling. Oh. Yes, correct. Um, one of the things that she did on her official website was um, every month she picked a fan site of the month and actually she did interviews um, with uh, people who put up these sites, actually flew them out to meet her. Um, and in other official interviews, she said that instead of reading back through her own books, she relied a lot on fan encyclopedias that would pop up to check her own facts. Wow. Um, so yeah, I think that things like that um, are, are really interesting in the way that fandom isn't just a taking, but a kind of circular contributing. Well, no, that, that's I what think, I was, go I ahead, Michael, sorry. there's a big sorry. difference between the glossary or encyclopedia and fan fiction. Like, I will admit here uh, in front of God and everybody that I have a um, timeline and character listing for all John Updike's novels, just to see how it all fits together. I don't consider that fan fiction. Right. Uh, if I may academic engage in a resource, bit of... Or at least that's what I told yeah. myself. Well, if I can engage in a bit of apologia, um, <laughs> the first fiction that I ever wrote was fan fiction. Mine um, as well. The first fiction I ever wrote was... Uh, an, expect an expansion on the illusion in The Hobbit when it says that Bilbo Baggins recognized the howling of wolves out in Wilderland because he had a, uh, an older cousin who would imitate wolves. So I decided I'm going to tell the story of the older cousin who had encounters with wolves. Um, I wrote Star Wars fan fiction. Um, but if you look in uh, particularly the history of language arts pedagogy, um, that back before uh, uh, your own independent voice and uh, and you know personal expression was such a fetish, the way people learned the art of writing was uh, was first by uh, by taking dictation, by memorizing other people's works massively and copying them out, and by imitating their styles. Um, the 
the the imitation of style and the expansion of uh, of even fictional settings uh, was was part of learning the craft of writing, even creative writing. I mean, what is the Aeneid but Homer fan fiction with a little bit of Caesar Augustus fan fiction thrown in? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, this this a lot of people when it was especially when a new kind of genre uh, is is introduced and people fall in love with it, with it the next iterations of that genre are are very like fan fiction <laughs> of it um i i've read some of the 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 fantasy novels that came out in the 60s right after tolkien um kind of burst onto the field and it's extraordinarily like reading Tolkien, but with different names. But that was because the person who was writing it, uh, Tolkien, was their muse, and they hadn't uh, they hadn't really gotten that far away from it yet. But again, David, um, that's something other than fan fiction. That that true. is that's writing like somebody else. It's not writing new adventures of their characters. Now you have a point with the Aeneid. I don't have a response for that one um, <laughs> because because that is that is self evidently fan fiction. Right. Well, if 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 I could expand it, and maybe uh, maybe this is something that Victoria might like to chime into, but I honestly, uh, one of the things that inspired my Middle Earth fan fiction and my Star Wars fan fan fiction was the desire to treat those fictional worlds as if they had an independent reality that I could also document, um, as if there actually was a story of Bilbo's cousin that just needed to be written down, but it already existed in some way. Um, the, and the notion of, of a canon as if, you know, as if Tolkien, as if George Lucas were just channels of something real that, that I could also participate in bringing to a larger life. Um, at least that's how I felt. I certainly agree. Um, uh, and I think that's why fan fiction um, is so huge in sci-fi communities because mm. you already have these, um, for most intents and purposes, boundless worlds where um, the author, the original author, has had to um, put so many little bits and pieces and things that um, in any given novel can't really be expanded, um, like the, the episode with the wolves that, that you talk about, um, because those things have, there have to be so many minutiae for a well-realized um, science fiction or fantasy world to exist, um, I think fan fiction goes hand in hand with, uh, with that kind of thing. And we will spare our listeners a discussion of the seamy underbelly of fan fiction slash fiction and, uh, and what have you. <laughs> right, right. I, was, I, was I mean, well, what, one other thing, I, the, the only other thing I'd add is, I mean, if you take away fiction that is based on prior publicly recognized texts, there goes Shakespeare. Yes. It's true. Yeah. All right. Well, I will I will uh, cop to just being creeped out by uh by by fan subculture. Uh, that's because you're a modern literature guy, man. You you want the originality. F- f- fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> that exists. F- fair enough. <laughs> Victoria, do you have anything to add before we close the show? Yes, uh, I'd like to get back to uh, your point about idolatry um, just a bit. Um, I think um, as someone who was in Baptist youth groups at the point where I was also sort of discovering the boy band renaissance and all all of that stuff um, (laughs) that we mentioned earlier, um, I think there were points where I was certainly idolatrous, um, but I think that because of how much fandom is community to me and because of how much participating in fandom um, gave me an outlet where I could share myself with other people who were into the same thing. Um, I I don't feel like I have, um, I don't feel like that idolatry is as much of an issue anymore um, because of practical real life reasons. Um, I have uh, a marriage and a job and a church and things that take my attention away and also give me emotional and spiritual fulfillment um, in, in so many ways that I don't really need the fandom community as much as I did um, at another point in my life. So I think that, um, that that takes away the idolatry question for me a little bit. 
Um, and that was something else I wanted to mention. Oh, and also, um, lastly, if anybody's uh, interested in theory of fandom and would like a good solid introduction, I would recommend Cheryl Harris's Theorizing Fandom. Um, that's the best overview I've seen. All right, well, that's it for uh, episode 23 of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and uh, I suppose season 2.5 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We'll be back weekly starting uh, sometime in August. I don't think we've set a date yet. Very weekly. <laughs> David, do you want to uh, do you want to uh, talk about what our first episode in season 3 is going to be? Um, I, I think it's been a really interesting year of, of doing this podcast and exploring the topics that we've that we've done. And I, I thought, beginning a second year, that it might be good to uh, kind of re- recapitulate, but also redigest some of the ideas that uh, that we started off with. What what is this Christian humanism project? Um, you know, and also, uh, I'd like a, I'd like to let it serve as a forum for uh, what directions uh, will we be going in this next year. So uh, a bit of recentering, but also of, uh, of looking forward, of being able to give our, our listeners a taste of things to come. So if you've got suggestions for what we should do in the coming year, do send them to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We, uh, we've already gotten a couple this summer, and we'll talk about those in the first episode in the fall. Uh, in, until then, you can, uh, you can visit us at www.christianhumanist.org. Uh, for Nathan Gilmore, for David Grubbs, for Victoria Farmer, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. This is the story of Victoria Lee. She started up on Birkenden and ended up with me. She lived in Berkeley till the earthquake. Exit.